God, that is called Shomrim Hafkid. Shalom Chevra, thank you for joining. It is wonderful to, uh, to see you. This is how we see each other these days. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with you all. And um, as some of you know the backstory, but perhaps not everyone, um, I was blessed last week to turn 39. And so in honor of that, um, uh, I, I want to say achievement for survival. <laughs> I think it's my parents' uh, achievement. I don't know how they kept me alive for certain years. But um, the, the blessing of survival, I wanted to talk about the Lamed Tet Malachot. The Lamed Tet Malachot. Um, and to do that differently. And I looked around. I couldn't find material. I couldn't find material that looked at the Lamed Tet Malachot, not from a legalistic perspective, um, but from a more philosophical um, and ethical uh, and justice perspective. And so that is the goal here. And there's quite a bit to unpack. The framework will be such that I will do a presentation of each of these 39. They'll always be Tuesday at 10 o'clock Arizona time, um, 1 o'clock Eastern, 8 o'clock Israel, um, 10 o'clock Tuesdays, uh, Arizona time. And the idea is 15, 10, 15, 20 minutes of a presentation on that particular malacha, and then a, a space for um, brainstorming, um, uh, questions, thoughts, critiques, and the like. And I think we'll normally have a little slideshow, but then we'll take that away. Uh, I think you can access my video if you prefer, but some, some slides there to kind of enhance, and then we'll take that away for the, for the Q&A part, and everyone can put their video on so we can see each other and engage a little bit more. AJ, we're good? Should be good. Great, great. Okay, so friends, um, I'm going to start with some elementary material. This will be a slightly longer to make the initial connections, but I'm going to presume a pluralistic framework. But here's what I mean by that in this regard. Um, I'm, I only want to say descriptive things, nothing prescriptive uh, around religi religiosity. So that is to say, although the traditional framework has to do with what we do and don't do on Shabbat, I'm sure every single one of us has a different Shabbat practice on this. And so my attempt or my, my, my aim is not at all to talk about how we should live Shabbat, but if there's anything prescriptive, it's how we should live the other six days of the week and how we will achieve that on Shabbat. We'll come to our own conclusions, but I am using as a jump off place, the traditional framework of the Lama Tepmalacho, which are the categories of prohibition on Shabbat, which has a few origins. First of all, they um, most obviously in the Mishnah, of Mishnah of Shabbat in the Babylonian Talmud, chapter 7, and then the Mechilt of the Rabbi Yishmael, um, deals with, it lists these 39, or in the Mishnah parlance, 40 minus 1, 
40 minus one. And then if you look in the Babylonian Talmud Shabbat, page 49b, it lists these 39. Now, like, like a lot of issues, it's kind of it's like that question, are we beings of emotion or beings of reason? Does our reason just justify what we um, already uh, sort of feel emotionally or intuitively? So two, is, is the 39 actually generative or is the 39 kind of post facto that they kind of had a system and then they kind of had to label it with the 39 and there's a, in, some interesting debates there and they line up these 39 malachot, these 39 dimensions of work with um, the corollaries of the items of the tabernacle, the mishkan, the work of building this tabernacle in the desert, which represents freedom, the transition from Egypt to the promised land where they exist in this um, in this space, which by the way, some of the Mafarshim, some of the commentators say the reason for the Mishkan is a result of the Ego HaZahab, as a result of the golden calf. God wanted no physical manifestation of divinity, but they took their gold from Egypt and they built a golden calf. And so God said, okay, there's got to be a concession. I see the people really want physicality in this world. They really want a material representation of God. We can't go as far as Islam will go later of having no representation. We want something. So let's have this Mishkan that will travel with us where divinity will be experienced. Okay. So the, so the 39 are derived from those 39 uh, aspects of work. And then the Jerusalem Talmud, because if anyone's not aware, there is a Babylonian Talmud and a competing Jerusalem Talmud. Interesting enough, the diaspora version wins out. The Babylonian uh, Talmud is more authoritative than the Jerusalem, Tal Jerusalem Talmud, even though it was written in the diaspora. And the Jerusalem Talmud derives the 39 based on gematria, numerology. numerology. I won't get into the details there. And then it's worth noting, there's also, also 39 toladot subcategories in addition to the 39 av malachot, the, 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 the broader categories. Please note questions or thoughts you have so that when we get to the discussion point, we can engage in that. Okay, Lamed Tet. So why is it called Lamed Tet? Because Lamed means 30, um, means 30 and it's in number value and Tet is nine. So 39 malachot, 39 dimensions of work. Okay, now here's the next, here's the next layer to this. Okay, fine, the Mishkan, but how is that connected to creation? that there's also 39 dimensions to the creation of the world. And here I lean on one of the great uh, Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, Nechama Leibowitz, um, who is notably, uh, although it's not her most important trait, but is also the sister of Professor Leibowitz, who was a very radical thinker himself. But she was one of the great biblical commentators of the 20th century. And she offers over here, um, seven comparisons to the, to the Lashon in Bereshit, the language of creation, to the Lashon of the Mishkan, to the language of the building of the tabernacle. Some of these will be obvious. I'll highlight just one or two. It says, we say in uh, Kiddush, those who say Kiddush, the, the prayer over the wine or the grape juice on Shabbat, we say, Vayachulu Hashemayim Varetz V'chotzevaam, Vayachal Elohim V'yom Ashvi Malach Asher Asa. Vayachulu, the language of Vayachulu, so too, in the language in the Mishkan of the tabernacle, is v'teichel kol avodat Mishkan, o hel moed, v'echal Moshe et ha So malachto, God uses malacha to create the world, does work to create the world, the language of malacha. So too, the language of malacha in building the Mishkan, and so too, the language of how we think about Shabbat frameworks is the language of malacha. Okay, so, um, and then another one, again, Nechama uh, Leibovitz has seven different comparisons. Here's just the second one I'll offer. V'yas Elohim HaRakia. V'yas Elohim HaRakia. That, that uh, um, God made the firmament, and God made the two great lights, and God made the, bees, the, the, um, 
the beast of the earth. So there's all this vayas, vayas. And then by, by the Mishkan, vayasu mikdash. It's the same language of like, osei shalom, make peace. You should make or you should do. Um, and most famously, vayasu mikdash v'shochanti betocham. Make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Okay, so there's a number of language parallels that Nechama Leibowitz points out to very beautifully that shows us that, the, that the, this construction around, around Shabbat resembles the idea of the Mishkan, this divine dwelling between Egypt and, and the Promised Land, and also in the creation of the world. And so the idea here is we refrain from the Lamed Tet Malachot on Shabbat in order to reflect on how to return to this work in a sense of renewal. Right? That's not to say that these actions are bad, and thus in the utopia of Shabbat, we want to refrain from the bad, but rather these actions are good, and in order to return to them renewed, we need to step away from them and reflect on them in order to, that our work can be more generative and holy and ethical and just. Okay, now uh, my, my dear wife Shoshana um, uh, often asks the question, um, is it that on Shabbat we are becoming our ideal self or that Shabbat is a space to re restore our best self of our six days of the week? Okay, so is Shabbat the ideal um, or is Shabbat um, generative for the ideal? Um, another way to think of that, in our calendar, we think, of, we think of Sunday as the final day of the week. Do we? Uh, is that how we think of it in America? America, yeah. Monday's the first day of the week, right? Whereas in Shabbat, Shabbat is the last day of the week. Sunday's the first day. So does that mean that, um, uh, that right, Yom Rishon is, Monday, is uh, Sunday? Do we think of Shabbat as sort of the pinnacle of creation or, um, that we're trying to achieve or Shabbat as restorative of the other days of creation? Okay, so that's a little bit of the opening of the connection. Now today, as I said, um, each session, so that, that first 10 minutes was just kind of uh, laying the framework a little bit. So that's why we'll be a little bit longer today. Um, but that's laying the framework of connection between Bereshit, creation, Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the 39 Malachot of Shabbat. And then not just looking past, but looking forward, what does that mean for how we think of society today and our work to repair ourselves and our homes and our community and ultimately the world. Okay, so this is Malachim Shevet, these thought through activities that we engage in. And the first of those is called Zoreya, Zoreya. Zoreya means seeding or sowing or planting. Anything that enables vegetative growth, okay? Now, um, this can tap into two levels of freedom because Shabbat is ultimately about freedom, just like the, um, the Jubilee year um, or the sabbatical, the sabbatical year is the year of freedom for an academic. I argue that every professional should have a sabbatical year, not just academics. Uh, actually, most academics might not even get it every seven, or clergy members. But everyone should have a year every seven where they can step back from not just their land, but their work in order to restore. Okay, that's a broader conversation. Shabbat is about freedom. Why? It's connected to Zecher the Masei Bereshit, this connection of, free, of uh, freedom as in human free will. We'll talk about that in session two. But also, that the exodus from Egypt is, is fundamental to the Shabbat experience, as mentioned in the Kiddush and throughout the liturgy. Also, we, um, Zorea, this notion of seeding or planting, is connected to day three of the creation story, of course, the growth of vegetation. And then when we look at the Mishkan, again, we're going to go back and forth between creation and tabernacle. 
tabernacle, the first 11 of the malachot are, are concerned with goes into making the bread and the dyes. Okay, now today we're very disconnected from the agricultural experience, or at least I am, many of us are. Perhaps you have a garden, you do engage in gardening. Perhaps you yourself have a farming practice. But my, my attempt here is, is, not to, is not to share that, that our relationship as Jews to the agricultural experience is merely one of the past, but one of the current. Not only in how we engage in it today practically, but also um, Israel, you know, let's say roughly half of the Jewish population or, or you know, 40 to 50% um, of the world Jewish population has returned to an agricultural relationship in many ways um, within a Jewish sovereignty. But also um, that as a theoretical construct, um, we should think about the agricultural cycle uh, perhaps more and that we should not on an ethical level be so disconnected from how our food systems, how our food systems operate. Okay, now what do I mean that this is connected to the bread and the dyes? Okay, the bread is the show bread called the Lechem HaPanim. Actually, it's a fascinating name. The Lechem HaPanim, the bread that was in this Mishkan, um, is, is Lechem HaPanim means the, the bread of faces. I've never heard somebody call it that. The, the bread of the faces. Um, that it should always be showing. The bread should be showing, and on Shabbat, we're going to change this bread. Um, so there, there's a fundamental relationship to bread. That's why bread is so fundamental to the Shabbat experience as well. But also, Zorea is connected not only to growing, um, you know, uh, growing, growing the crops as related to producing bread, but also to producing the dyes. The dyes um, will be used, well, producing the herbs, which then produce the dyes, which will be used to, to beautifying beautifying the tabernacle, the Mishkan as well. Okay, so now um, if I wanted to say something practical about Zoria, which I want to say very little about, this has to do with how we relate today to watering and pruning and weeding as Shabbat experiences. If one gets even more technical, they wouldn't eat watermelon over a grass area lest the seed fall. And even though that's probably not going to grow watermelon on that grass there, anything that potentially relates to uh, the growing experience and rinsing one's hands over the grass, opening one's window shade in order that plants could get more sun, putting fresh cut flowers into a vase of water. So the practical level of how some who uh, engage in traditional Shabbat experience is quite extensive. And again, that is not viewed as just legal technicalities, but I want to argue as a reminder, a, a restorative reminder of how we engage in the, in, um, in the renewal process of creation and now into the greater, the greater and deeper meaning around Zorea. Okay, let's jump in. I want to argue that the Zorea is ultimately about a potentiality. As we look at the seed, it's about potentiality. And the first philosophical framework I want to lay out is the Neo-Aristotelian capability approach, which I first encountered through a lecture I heard directly from Martha Nussbaum, um, a professor of law and ethics at the University of Chicago. And this is quite a complex idea, and I've read, through, I've read about it also through Amartya Sen, another uh, very uh, uh, a renowned figure in the philosophical and, and applied philosophical world. And here the idea, it, don't worry, it's not as esoteric as it sounds, but the idea is that every, and this is a very simplified version, but I encourage you to read more about it, everyone has a capability, every being has a capability, and anything that prevents the freedom of, of, of a living being from actualizing and thriving and flourishing from, that cap um, from the capacity of that capability would be morally wrong. 
Um, and thus, from a utilitarian perspective, the measure is not merely happiness. How do we reduce suffering and increase happiness for beings? But how do we construct a society that enables all beings to flourish and be nourished to actualize their unique capability? In the justice world, as we used to talk about equality, now we talk about equity, which is to say everyone doesn't get the same stuff, but rather everyone gets what they need. So too, in a capability approach, everyone has a different capability. Um, and we shouldn't just issue out, you know, stimulus checks is kind of a random example. Maybe we should give stimulus checks, perhaps a bunch more. But actually, people should be given the freedom that they need in order to uniquely flourish. Now, this is not only has the, that utilitarian perspective, but also the Kantian, which is normally kind of contrasted with the utilitarian's perspective. But the Kantian approach in that each person is an ends in themselves, yet it differs from that in that we embrace a deeper plurality of values in assessing the good life for each unique person. We're not going to have some universal imperative that we impose on each individual, um, but rather each person has a seed of potentiality within themselves that needs to be nourished and needs something different to be nourished. Okay, so there has to be equality on a baseline. Again, that's a floor, not a ceiling. Equality is a floor, not a ceiling. Everyone needs access to quality education, running water, clean water access to healthcare, basic human needs that people need to survive. Um, and then that's not a, that we don't stop there. Now everyone has a seed, a spiritual seed an intellectual seed within them, a capability. And in order to flourish, they're going to need a lot more to actualize that. So how do we think about deep potentiality from a mystical perspective? Here we're drawing on Bereshit Rabbah 10.7 or Zohar 61a from the first volume there, where it famously says, there is no blade of grass below that does not have an angel or a star that which strikes it and tells it to grow. Now, strike might sound violent. Let's call it a little love tap, a little love type saying it to grow. So every form of life has an angelic force behind it on a mystical level that is encouraging it to grow to its potential. That is to say, there is a seed planted within all of life within all of life that is um, generative towards actualization, towards a flourishing. And this is part of what Zoraya is about, is about accessing that deeper level of life potential and nourishing that to, um, to not merely fit into social conformity or to survive, but to, in order to thrive to one's to one's uniqueness. Now, how is this connected to nature as well and divinity? The Degel Machne Ephraim, um, who, who likes gematria, um, again, numerology, comparing the, the, the value of the Hebrew letters and, and making com uh, generative comparisons, says that the gematria of Elohim, the numerology of the word for God, or one of the names of God, um, matches the gematria for Hateva, nature, nature. Now that, that's gavalic. That's very interesting. If you think about that, what is that? Nature is God. Now, we don't have to go to Spinoza. Spinoza as a pantheist says, okay, that's it. Nature is God. God is nature. It's all the same. Now, pan, panentheism goes beyond pantheism, which is to say, yes, God is within all of creation, but also beyond, within it all, but beyond the creator of it and the, and the holder of it but beyond as well. Um, actually, it's, it's worth noting, I should have no, I noted it already, but because Dr. Fishbane, assuming Dr. Mona Fishbane's still here, uh, yeah, yeah, I see her there. I first learned that Gamatria from her amazing son. I'm a, I'm a student of, her, of, of hers and of her husband's and of, 
uh, one of her sons, although hopefully the other as well. They're, all, they're a Jewish theology family. And so I first learned this idea actually from her son. So it's amazing not only that I can have the mitzvah to give the proper attribution, but also uh, to, to honor uh, a, his, uh, his wonderful mother who's here. Now, um, um, this, this idea uh, as part, is part of a distinct imminent, uh, imminentist theology. That is to say that it promotes the idea that the spiritual world permeates the mundane. These are not distinct realms, the Kodesh and the Chol. There's the Holy over there, the mundane over there, engage in the Holy, reject the mundane. But rather, um, um, uh, it is, it is uh, infused within and deeply interconnected. It's also not a secularized mysticism like we said about Spinoza, right? By Spinoza that, that um, where there's a secular reality that is still ultimately mystical. Okay, let's keep going. Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Breslov movement. I know I, there's no pictures of him, so we'll just show a chair, the br famous Brismila chair, <laughs> the circumcision chair, um, uh, that, um, um, which I think I saw in a museum in Yushalayim. I think it was the original. Uh, anyways, so Rabbi Nachman says, Sicha, Sicha means meditation or prayer. Sicha in this context means meditation or prayer. Has the same root as Siach. Siach meaning a bush, a bush. And then he argues that every bush yearns to live and to grow and depicts, and he depicts vegetation as adding strength to our prayer. This is part of Heath Bodedut. He's voted us that we should go out into the forest. We should go out into the forest alone. Professor Allen uh, up there in Flagstaff is probably easier to do than down here in the desert. Um, but we should go out into the forest, engaging in hebotus. We should scream. We should scream. Psycho, you know, we should psychologically, cathartically, we should release the the subconscious or the or deeper unconscious layers into our own psychic sphere, into the divine sphere. Uh, as a form of communication to self, as a form of communication and connection to God, um, and that the prayers that can emerge, the conversation that can emerge within the forest, within being amidst the bushes, has a much deeper potentiality because it reminds us of our own inner seed, our own process of zoraya, our own process of planting seeds, and of nourishing our own inner unique seed. Of course, this is also why Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses encounters God at the burning bush, who he of course misses at first and then eventually sees. He misses it and then sees it as the Ramban, as Nachmanides points out, because he's miss and Nachmanides says, because he didn't spiritually prepare himself, which is to say that until, until we have found this potentiality, this, uh, this, this seed within us, we can't see that beyond us as well. So the Slonimer Rebbe says, Ain od milvado doesn't mean that there's no other God. There's no other God except God. Uh, but rather, there's nothing but God. There's nothing but God. Ain od milvado, which is to say all of nature leads us back to that path, to the oneness of all creation, the interconnectivity of all life. And that by sowing a seed, we are attempting to actualize a representation of, a representation of the divine. When we expand nature, Nature as an expansive construct. I don't want to get into the galaxies and things that I know very little about, although I read quite a bit about. Um, that um, that when, we ex when nature expands, and we are a part of expansive sense of nature, it's kind of like when we expand our, our, our human nature, expand our human freedom by expanding knowledge. When you have more knowledge of choices, you have more choices. You have more freedom, one might say, or maybe less freedom, you might say. But, um, but this idea that we, in planting, in planting in the world, um, and becoming more in touch with the seeds, we actually are expanding divinity. We're expanding Torah. We're expanding divinity into the world. Okay. So each seed, each seed within a fruit reminds us of a soul within each person. 
when we eat fruit and we meditate on that, we make a bracha, we make a blessing, we thank God for this fruit and we encounter the seed, it evokes an awareness of our own inner seed. And we're challenged to see beyond the surface of reality into the hidden mystical dimension. Um, where there is wisdom buried within the universe. This, of course, also with language or any symbols or representational objects we encounter that only evoke a deeper level of, of consciousness and a, a deeper level of reality that goes beyond the physical world, beyond the objective, if there's such objective reality at all, um, and beyond the, 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 the realm of language. So how do seeds grow? How do souls grow? We shift our consciousness from an external physical planting process to a deeper spiritual and intellectual consciousness around human potentiality and dignity. We water our inner seed. This is a part of what Zorea is about. Now, you might say it's a violent act to plant a seed in another person. We don't want to plant a seed in someone else. They have their own seed. Many people try to do that. A religious fundamentalist might try to plant a seed of emesdic Torah, of truth inside someone else. But rather, our role as educators, as thought partners in relationship is to help be a partner and have, having someone else nourish their own seed rather than trying to plant that seed. Now it's interesting to note that the first mitzvah of the Torah is Peru Urvu. Peru Urvu is the very first mitzvah of the Torah. The first mitzvah of the Torah is, is um, to, to procreate, to procreate. Um, and it's interesting that the first mitzvah of the Torah is aligned with the first Av Malacha of Zoraya. Zoraya, the first Amalacha, the first of these 39, is connected to this idea of creativity. The Mayam Loes says, actually, you can fulfill pro the mitzvah of procreation through intellectual and spiritual creativity, which works not only for those who, who have suffered through infertility, but also for those for various reasons who have chosen or it's been thrust upon them um, through being single or through other factors of life that it is not in their cards to have children. Um, that um, spiritual and intellectual creativity is a way to fulfill the mitzvah of Peru Urvu each day and also in one's later years um, beyond the age of, uh, of fertility um, that that's, was, one can continue to fulfill this mitzvah. Of course, having a child is the ultimate hope in the future. It's the ultimate belief that there's a future that's worth investing in and investing by putting a life that one will love and nourish um, into, into, the, into the future. Now, there's a lot to say on this particular issue um, about the potential harm that can come from insemination, which ought to be obvious. Um, but one might argue that polygamy historically is rooted in evolutional uh, psychology, the desire to spread one's seed to expand one's, one's, uh, one's empire. In fact, one of the tragic ways we think about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is through kind of a... Uh, um, uh, kind of an insemination warfare, if you will, that the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, are seeking to reproduce as fast as possible, as are certain parts of uh, the Palestinian population, in, in an attempt to see, you know, in a population warfare, um, which is very complex and well beyond the scope of what we're doing today. Okay, I'm moving towards a conclusion here. Again, we're only going long today because this was an in, uh, added an introductory element to this, uh, this series. And, um, uh, as, but let's continue with Zerah as, uh, as we, we seek to uh, conclude. Zera, Zera seed is not only a personal issue, um, which by the way, we norm, um, uh, okay, I don't want to get, get, go on that tangent. Um, the personal issue of procreation and pru-urvu, but also Jewish peoplehood, Jewish continuity. We talk about Zera Avraham, the seed of Abraham, right? Or Zera Yisrael. People talk about paternal, uh, what do we call it? Paternal? Jews, uh, the patrilineal, patrilineal descent 
as opposed to matrilineal descent, right? From a traditional Jewish perspective, you're a Jew if you convert or if your mother's Jewish, right? The reform movement adopted patrilineal descent uh, a few decades ago, which is to say having a Jewish father is enough. And so now there's a huge shift and um, debate among the Jewish people who is a Jew, who is a Jew, not only by which conversion counts, um, but also by this, this issue of, um, of um, if you have just a Jewish father, um, is that enough? However, the Kabbalah actually um, uh, validates this approach that Zera Yisrael, that one with a Jewish father has a, a Jewish seed, so to speak. We'll come back to this, the dangers of this approach in a minute. Although the, the, poten the potentials there also is that there is a Kabbalistic notion that we should, we should gather those seeds back to, back to the peoplehood source. And so there should be a path towards traditional conversion um, or again, in a more progressive Judaism, that, that conversion isn't needed at all. Although to be sure, the reform movement does welcome conversion by those who have just a Jewish father, by those who want it, but also validate that the Jewish identity is valid if they don't want that conversion also. Okay, so Zeri Yisrael means ancestors. It's past looking. The seed is the past, right? Now we can transcend our planter. We can transcend the planter or you can honor your planter. Where did you come from? Do I want to be particularistic or just universalistic? Where did I come from? Is God my planter? Do I, are my parents my planter? Are my ancestors of the Jewish people my planters? What's my relationship to my seed of where I've come from? What is my essence? Freud thinks to some degree our essence is so shaped by our early childhood experiences that the essence is, in many ways is almost not there. It's so malleable. So just like Marx, our socioeconomic status is so malleable um, that that it, it reshapes us. But then again, someone like Spinoza or other or Darwin or others who look more at DNA are going to think that our essence actually, again, nature versus nurture, our essence is so determined that those factors um, are, are in many ways secondary. We're going to look at that in session two uh, next week, this, this issue of determinism versus freedom, human freedom, as it relates to the Lama Temelachot. Now, um, in terms of philosophical essentialism, we should, we should note some dangers. Essentialism can be very dangerous. It can be racist, that the white person is fundamentally different than the person of color. It can be Jewish supremacy, that the Jew is fundamentally different and fundamentally better. We are chosen, um, and chosenness, it does not mean we have a special distinct mission to achieve morally in the world, it mean, which, which is a very noble view in my, in my understanding. But for some, it means the Jew is the ideal. The seed of the Jew is more holy. It, our, our, our very essence is more holy. We got to keep the seed pure. In fact, many of those who are, are far too stringent and set boundaries around conversion are motivated, perhaps one might say, by such a notion that the seed is pure and we have to keep the purity of that seed um, alive. Um, so that uh, it not be uh, made impure. And of course, this is very problematic. Just as notions, of course, feminism has different strands. Some feminism, uh, strands of feminism think that uh, men and, and women are fundamentally uh, uh, fundamentally the same and gender is merely a construct. Well, gender is obviously a construct, but that biologically, actually, those differences are very insignificant, um, even uh, to the extent that we are fundamentally the same in our consciousness um, of, uh, of life. And there's others who say, actually, we're fundamentally different. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have equal treatment in law and in society and in religion and the like, but we are fundamentally different. Um, and, uh, and honoring those differences is also a part of that feminism. Nonetheless, essentialism of that we are fundamentally different can be very problematic um, in many ways. Um, and, and again, as we see in white supremacy today or in other groups that promote hate, 
um, oftentimes there's an essentialism that can be rooted there about fundamental human difference and, and capability. Uh, and, and this is actually one of the great debates in academia with Larry Summers at Harvard, you know, should men be allowed to have more of a role in science um, and math? And I remember it was math also or just science uh, because men have, empirically we know men are more capable of, uh, of higher levels of science. Of course, great debates around that, around how we legislate around human difference, uh, if at all. Okay, big tangent. Okay, we're moving towards the conclusion of Zoraya, then we'll move to conversation. Rev Shlomo Volbi, a great 20th century teacher of Musar in Jerusalem, taught, taught the world is built of your love. Olam chesed yibana. The world is built of love from Psalms, from Tehillim, 89.2. Every act of chesed, every act of kindness, even a small one, he says, is an actual act of building and creation, enlivening the spirit of the downtrodden and the brokenhearted. Okay? Now that is to say, going back to Zorea, that the goal here is planting seeds our own, and, and nourishing our own seeds and being a partner with the divine in creation. Shabbat, we step back from creation in order to return to our work to be a partner with, with the divine in recreating or, or completing cre creation, if you will. And the pr most primary way we think of creation and completing because God let and created a broken world in order that we could be partners in, in finishing that creation or partnering in the ongoing renewal of creation is through kindness, is through chesed, is through chesed. Okay, my last two points and then we're going to open it up. Zorea, look at the words. Zorea, zar, zar is in there, foreign, and ra, evil. What happens when you make, this, you make your seed foreign? You make your seed foreign, you're capable of evil. The, the seed within you, the czar, the seed within you, we have to become attached to it, connected to it. When we become alienated from it, we become capable of great evil. Here's how Rabbi Nachman say, says it. You shall love your fellow as yourself. He says, reacha doesn't mean your fellow. It means your evil. You shall love your evil like part of yourself. I love this Torah. Because he says some of the greatest evil is done by those who aren't aware of their own shadow. If you're not aware of your own darkness, you're capable of great evil. And so through therapy, through spiritual writing, through charuta, through whatever prayer, through whatever meditation, through whatever work we need to do, we need to become self-aware of our own complicity, our own, um, our own dimensions, our own uh, subconscious layers of, of being so that we can own them and take responsibility for them, um, our own uh, our own privilege or misgivings or harms that we put into that we're not even aware of. Um, and so again, Zorea, the seed within us has an evil there. So the seed is not only pure, the seed within us has the potential for great evil. And so we have the more alienated we become from the pure good seed and the more, uh, and the more uh, we allow it to unconsciously uh, channel the Yetzirah, our inclination to do harm, the, the more detrimental. And so friends, here's where I'm gonna pause, um, that our partnership in the renewal of creation to, is to tend to the earth, to plant seeds on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, to nourish our own inner seeds, our own inner essence, to acknowledge our capabilities and become more, more aware of them, to nourish them and our potentiality, and to be sure to create spaces for others to do that in a society that is just, that can enable that for others as well. Okay, so what we're going to do is uh, take everyone off mute. And um, those who want to be on mute, please mute yourself again. Um, and uh, those who want to now share or react or question or critique, we'll have the opportunity to do that. Again, the goal of this 
is to be much quicker each week, um, but there was an introductory element to this today, so that's why it went a little bit longer. So, uh, but the end time for this first session will be 11. So we'll go no longer than 11, uh, my time zone, no longer than 20 minutes. Okay, floor is open. Feel free to chat as well if you want. Okay. Uh, Shmuley, can you hear me? Yes, Dr. Fishbane. It's Mona Fishbane. First of all, thank you for your lovely words. Yes, about shalom, family. shalom. Yeah, 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 you're fantastic. <laughs> I get the zahud of, of, uh, of a lot of Jewish learning all around me, and, and, and including during lockdown. That's great. Um, so I, I wanted, I just, first of all, this is brilliant. I am so excited about being part of this series and learning from you. And it's just, I love what you said today. I wanted to share a couple of things outside of Judaism that I think relate to what you're saying, thank also you. spiritual texts. One is from Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the uh, Buddhist uh, Vietnamese monk who says that we all have inside ourselves seeds of love and compassion. Mm. We also have seeds inside us of anger and resentment mm. and that we should water our seeds of love and compassion, not anger and resentment. And then he says that he calls it selective watering. And he says, we should also water our partner or our spouse's seeds of love and compassion, mm. and anger, and resentment, which I think is really powerful because it brings in the ethical and the relational about watering the seeds. And one more point um, related sort of similar there's a Confucian term, Jen, J-E-N, or some people pronounce it Ren. This comes from Dr. Keltner's book, Born to be Good. And, he, and it's basically a Confucian idea, J-E-N, of bringing out the good in the other, which is, again, an ethical or relational task. And I think, again, I do a lot of work with couples, so I think it's something that's really central to couple relationships. So I wanted to throw that in because I think it's very much in keeping with with what you're it. talking about. I love it. It's such a great contribution. I'm going to follow up with you on that, but I think those are, are really um, um, are really wonderful, especially within the partner uh, the partner level. So thank you. Okay, someone else. Ishmuli? Yes. We have a question from the Temple Gates of Prayer. Oh, great. And it, this is the question. If Shabbat is to step back and renew from the honorable work of building of the world, how do we explain God's need, quote unquote, in Genesis to pull back from this building process? Oh, excellent, excellent. Okay, excellent. So, right. So, okay. So let's let's just uh, flesh out that question a little bit there. If Shabbat is to step back and renew the honorable work of building of the world. How do we explain God's need in Genesis to pull back from this building process? Okay, wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay, so there's a lot to say about that. And in the interest of time and wanting to hear from other people, I won't say too much. But okay, so this idea, this idea um, of menucha, menucha of rest is something fascinating. The idea that God models menucha of rest, the importance of parents modeling for this for children. But also, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to know, because if you're like me, you have trouble going to bed at night for lots of reasons, but one of them that there's still too much to do, um, that God goes to bed each night, so to speak, um, without creation being done. So how could that happen? Are you going to bed? You know, creation, you know, that. so too, it's modeling div divinity to actually go to bed. <laughs> you can use that as a rebuke to your partner if they're staying awake. Um, but also that God models manucha, God models rest by stopping on the seventh day is amazing. That actually it doesn't say six days is what we want to emulate from God. And then one is, um, is, is something else. But actually that seventh day we want to emulate as well that rest is an actualization of creation. It's built into it. And that rest is, um, 
is it's interesting that we are refraining from from dimensions of creation in order to engage in deeper layers of creation that god is still creating the world so to speak on the seventh day but a different spiritual realm we call it the uh the neshama yetera the, the extra soul we get on shabbat that there's spiritual creativity that emerges in that act okay so in kabbalah we call this simsum that simsum means god um uh uh, retracting God's self in order to create space for otherness. This, of course, is a great point of education, a great point of parenting, that, or a great pa- space for partnering or any relationship, that we remove a part of ourselves as an act of humility to create more space for others. Um, and that Shabbat it is a part of that experience within all of creation, that there's so many words, there's so many actions, and not enough being, not enough silence. Shabbat is, is an act of tzimtzum. A, uh, an act of creating space within creation to to reflect, to be introspective, to renew, um, but also not just renew, to to have a deeper layer of creation. Okay, I hope that was in some way responsive to the question. Uh, can I add to that? Yes, Ra- Rabbi, Ra- is that Rabbi Neil? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Hi. How are um, you? So, I, you know, if 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 indeed symptom, you know. Uh, started creation. There's a different kind of symptom that God does when God retracts away from creation, you know, um, on Shabbat at, at, you know, the end of the six days. Um, and that the rest, you know, that, that, that perhaps if we look, you know, if we combine uh, science and Torah, which I don't always like to do, but in this case, I think it's convenient that um, when you know if each one of the the days of creation was you know millions or billions of years that it's an era that this is the era of god's rest but not ours right this is the era when god sits back and does uh the work of the neshama yitera uh but uh it's not our time to do that it's our time to actually do the work we get one day god 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 gets forever um but we get one day so. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that. Love that. Thank you. So, okay, someone else. Questions, thoughts, clarifications, critiques. Hi, Shmuley. Um, thanks so much for this uh, really uh, compelling Torah. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you to maybe expand on a little bit is the re- relation between Chesed and Zoraya um, and the question of whether refraining from Zoraya on Shabbat also then on some level means refraining from Chesed. Uh, and if there's a way in which, and I'm kind of wanting to come back to the piece of your of your teaching that is about attending to, attuning to, being present to our own complicity with ill, our own sort of evil seed, so to speak. Um, if there's some sense in which, where there's a responsibility or an obligation for chesed during the week, um, something about even pulling back from chesed, even that, it has to do with a, a way of being present to, maybe more present to than we often are, 
uh, our own sort of evils, our, our, our own sort of difficult tendencies to presence forth. Um, uh, anyways, I just wanted, wondered if you expand a little bit on that relation between chesed and zoraya and the possibility of chesed itself as something to be, to be laid aside in, in keeping and remembering. Awesome. Awesome. Love that. Uh, Professor Ira Allen, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, so thank you for that. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, so there are, of course, different ways to think of this. And I want to lay out just one framework um, that it's, it, you know, my, my, uh, child, one of my kids was very upset when I told them that it was not our practice to give tzedakah on Shabbat. Of course, if it was a life-saving incident, we would, but it's not our practice uh, to um, uh, to handle money on Shabbat so that we can relate to money differently because money can be, I don't have to explain to everyone here, money can be such a corrupting um, and dangerous vehicle and burning vehicle in addition to one of great, great potential. Uh, but they said, how could that be? Shabbat is supposed to be a time of, of goodness and connecting to God and, and get, helping other people is so central to that. I said, and I said, okay, so part of this is stepping back from what is good to do the good, to, good, to do the good differently, to recharge, um, to reflect on how we're doing it and to potentially do it differently. And it does not mean it's bad. Just like a fast day doesn't mean food is bad, but the ideal is to fast. It's to relate to food differently or ref refrain refraining from sexual relations in a partnership doesn't mean sexual relations is bad, but we want to, we want to return in a more enhanced, a more enhanced way. Um, so too, refraining from a certain dimension of kindness within the universe, um, we pause in order that it can be different. Also, in order to return to learn how to, how to receive, that we are not just beings of, of giving, we're also uh, receiving beings, and that those, there's a deep interconnectivity of that, that the Kabbalah, the, the receiving, that it can be experienced on Shabbat, can deeply enhance that giving. Now, um, so that's the first bit I'm arguing, is that Zorea enables us to pull back from a certain type of planting in the world in order to do it better um, and differently, um, but also, secondarily, that there's a spiritual dimension to Zorea that we can only do on Shabbat. The spiritually creative work of Zorea, of planting, of, seed, of seeding, of tapping into potentiality. So that's to say we, we pause from Zorea, a certain type of Zorea, and, and engage in another type as well. So we don't really pause from Sadaka. We engage in our recommitment to righteousness. Um, and, it, and almost double down on it because part of tzedakah, as we know from our tradition, is not only the giving of money, but how we give it that enhances dignity rather than, than decreases it. So we gauge the type of tzedakah that enhances our appreciation and engagement with human dignity, um, that it's not merely a monetary transactional relationship. Hi, we have a, another comment. This is from, uh, I think, Rabbi Mark Biller. Uh, he, he writes, love the thought of Shabbat as a rest toward renewal, towards re-engagement, such a different concept than, quote, a list of restrictions. Yes, great. Thank you. Thank you for that, Robert Biller. It's great, uh, great that you're here with us also. I'm honored to be learning with, with, with scholars and these, and these comments and questions really enhance the experience. And I think that's right. I think that one of the great failures of Judaism, um, you know, prior to uh, the last few decades, and that's not to say we're, we're thriving at it now necessarily, but actually is that we taught Judaism as a system of rules, right? You should just do this and don't do that. Uh, I mean, that's a failure of any system that, 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 hold, that you know, holds on to rules. Also with parenting, <laughs> how we think about, you know, or, or any system that has rules, any, any institution. But actually that um, Judaism is most certainly, and ethics is most certainly not just a system of rules 
but has a deeper layers of, of meaning to them. And we may find those layers of meaning in, um, uh, persuasive or not. And, um, uh, and, and that, that persuasion might lead us in different directions. But I do think that Shabbat as a system of rules is dry at best and empty at wrong, um, you know, at worst. Um, but actually that, that, that this relationship between creation and Mishkan and our own self-renewal and towards our repair of the world, I believe to be deeply interconnected as we're going to see in a lot of these sources. Um, and I think, I really believe that Shabbat I want to say the most, but I'm going to be more humble and say the top three, is the top three most important Jewish contributions to the world. Um, this notion of Shabbat and what it can offer the activist community, what it can offer the healing community, what it can offer the, um, uh, really humanity at large, but not just humanity. Shabbat is about, is about human, human renewal, but it's also about environmental justice. Give the, give the land time to, to, uh, be, uh, to have a break. It's about animal rights. Give animals a break. It's about worker justice, give workers a break from work. Um, and so it, it is about uh, deepening empathy for, for, uh, for all life and all of creation. I'm, I'm allowing time for eight more minutes, but we don't need it if there's not more, more, more to sharing. But I, I do wanna embrace more silent pauses in case there are folks who will, who will engage. Okay, so I think we're gonna pause here. So friends, um, just some uh, notes of process. First of all, thank you all so much. I'm really so honored that this group is, is, is joining. I hope you'll continue to join. Um, this will, as I said, be 10 o'clock Pacific uh, or uh, um, at, uh, each Tuesday. Um, and that's where we can tap in at this link. It'll be the same link. Uh, hopefully you have registered so that if there's a time change, you will receive that update. Um, but we, these will also be recorded and posted on, on the Valley Beit Midrash uh, website learning library where you can get it, um, you know, um, and so you can access that there as well by podcast, if you prefer podcast or by, or by video as well. And um, this was Zorea. Next week will be Choresh, plowing, plowing, Choresh. If you have any comments, critiques, or suggestions going forward, please email them to me, rabbiyanklowitz at gmail.com, or learn at valleybatemadraj.org so that we can adjust in any ways possible. Um, and again, I'm very grateful to you. Wishing you all a wonderful day. Thank you so much.